Right. Um, so um, I'm going to be using Medicine Mountains as a point of reference for this. Um, the, the three specific topics we'll be looking at are alpine meadows and plant collection, um, medical networks around these Nawar pharmacists, and the, the changing ecology of the Himalayas. Um, I think when we get to the question and answer session, it may be the case that some categories I try quite carefully to keep suppressed are going to get loose and start running around the room. But for the moment, <laughs> we'll see if we can keep control of some slightly contentious categories, uh, like words like indigenous and sacred, but we'll see where we go. Um, the places I'm going to be using as references for this, uh, Himalchuli, which is a, a, a mountain to the, the north of Pokhara, which is a, a medicine collection site, um, a place which the Nawars call Silu, Gosankund, up towards Langtang, which is a pilgrimage site for Nawars. Um, there's a community forest near Farping, which is uh, a place where I've lived, and it's my my sasa chain. It's my it's my my in-laws' home. Um, uh, there's a place in the Chittagong Hill Tracks called Bandaraban, uh, towards the south of the Chittagong Hill Tracks, and then we'll be looking at Kawagarbo in Yunnan. I want to start with a very old song, which comes from the Atarva Veda. Um, and this is just a little piece of it here. Um, the song occurs in both recensions of the Atarva Veda. Um, and as with much of the Atarva Veda, it's really not very easy to translate, but the key bits we need here are pretty straightforward. Um, the earlier parts of this song address a highly poisonous plant, um, which is called Bish, uh, what in, in Nepal would be called Bik which is uh, still to, the, to this day, the name for a whole series of aconites, um, um, uh, wolfsbanes, monkshoods, that sort of thing. Um, and the collectors are addressing this plant with a, a, medical, a, a magical charm to stop it from hurting them while they try and dig it out of the ground. Um, so they say, uh, your poison has been taken away from you. You're surrounded by a group of people who can't be hurt. We're using charms to still you. And then um, towards the end, it says quite bluntly, um, and you're a commodity plant, prakrir asitram orshade, from kri, community, which means to sell something. Um, and it makes it very clear that at the time of the Atarva Veda, so this is not as far back as the Rig Veda, but it's really quite a long time ago. Already, the use of medicinal plants was completely bound up with the idea of trade, commodification, um, and from other evidence in early texts, we know that the plants were moved in trade networks across the whole of the uh, Indic area where it was possible, where trade routes were available. Um, so from very far back, when we talk about medicinal plants, magical plants, healing plants, we're already talking about things that are traded. Now, we have this idea of a menri in Tibetan, a medicine mountain, but you also have this idea of the medicine mountain in uh, Indic cultures. And the Himalayas are this wonderful kind of, it's not really a contact zone, it, it, it's, it's kind of a... Uh, a, a, a random theft zone where every community finds a way of stealing whatever uh, textual or uh, canonical authorities they need in order to build a, a reliable local tradition. So they're constantly borrowing from different uh, communities. Um, but this is from the Ramayana. And uh, in the Ramayana, Hanuman is the ideal sidekick for Ram. And Lakshman has been badly injured by a poisonous arrow during a battle between animal troops. And so Hanuman is sent with instructions to go get a, a medical herb called Sanjivani and bring it back from the Himalayas. Um, and Hanuman being the perfect sidekick, um, uh, smart, well, no, not smart, not, not, not particularly smart, but very capable and very strong, hunts endlessly to try and find this poor plant, can't find it, and simply tears the entire mountain out of the ground um, and leaps from the Himalayas all the way to Lanka where it's needed. So this is 
a very common image of a medical uh, of, a, of a medicine mountain that you see in Sanskrit sources. And um, there are some wonderful newer versions of this that are that are kind of manga style pictures of an incredibly muscular Hanuman with kind of taloned feet holding this massive mountain. But the the older pictures show very clearly the idea that the mountain itself is dripping with herbs. Um, what's interesting about this um, is that the this is a, a, a rather like the story of the sacrifice of sati um, and the, the parts of sati falling all over India to make the peats. This myth um, is used to explain why there are medical forests here and there. So um, a good example of the kind of alternation between good explanations that we're going to see showing up at various points in this material um, comes from the community forest that sits right close to Farping. Um, and it's a community forest which was established under the community uh, forest legislation. And it involved three different communities, one community of Tamang, one community of Nawars, and one community of um, Arya, um, uh, Jaisi, Jaisis, uh, agreeing to co-manage a forest. Um, and if you ask folk from any of those three communities where the forest comes from, they will give you one of two answers. They will either give you a political answer that refers to uh, historical changes in Nepal, the possibility of using the law to get control of local land, uh, building cooperative arrangements and creating a kind of harmonious political context within which this forest is well managed and is a resource for finding medicinal herbs and also things like kindling and timber. Or they will say it's a piece of the mountain that Hanuman was carrying. It fell off and landed on the ground just here and we discovered it and turned it into a local forest. Okay, so that's some sense of what we mean by medicine mountains. Much of the perspective that I'm going to take on these medicine mountains is from quite a distance. So um, I'll be talking about them from the perspective of a community called the Baniya, who live in the center of Kathmandu in two different chokes. They live in Itumbahal and um, then down, down below on the other side um, in Jocheng. Um, and they are a subcast of Urai. So they, uh, that, that takes some explaining, and I, I might not do all the explaining right now, um, but they are a, a very small subcast within a caste cluster that includes people like uh, uh, Tuladars, uh, long-distance caravaneers, um, and uh, Stapits and other, other groups that have traditional occupations, but who uh, were also heavily involved in the uh, Trans-Himalayan trade networks. So these are these are communities that these are these are castes that saw themselves as um, uh, connected to India, connected to Tibet. The Urai are interesting in that they they don't go anywhere. Uh, not the Urai, sorry, the Bani are interesting in, in that they don't go anywhere. They're, they see themselves as 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 pharmacists. I'm using the term advisedly here. Um, what they do is they buy in fresh ingredients in bulk and then they sort and they cure and they sell it either wholesale or retail something else that they do that doesn't directly make them any profit but it is an extremely important part of their engagement with all the communities who come to either buy or sell from them is that they actively tend an extended network of uh, traders, collectors, prescribers who are involved in the medicine trade. I'll come to that in a bit. So this is what it looks like when you buy. Um, in the picture, you've got an older woman and I think her daughter-in-law who have just brought several big bales of material down from the hills um, and one of the local helpers, and they've got it out on a balanced beam scale and they're weighing it in. Um, the the Bania will assess the material that's being brought in. So um, they will uh, heft it, they'll sniff it, they'll break it to see how it snaps. Um, 
and they will assess whether or not it's actually worth buying and how good it is. Then it'll be weighed and priced. They'll go through a long negotiation um, and they'll make an offer on buying the, the materials in. That offer may involve extending credit. Um, and the, the long-term interfamily, intergenerational relationships that, that exist around these Bania shops is quite something. Um, I was allowed, we were allowed during our field work to record any number of conversations. We were allowed to ask all sorts of impertinent questions and sit in on all sorts of deals. But the Hisap Kitab, the, the account books were off limits. Um, we were able to ask how they were being used and we could see that in some cases they went back decades. Um, and they um, created bonds, um, which were, I think, not particularly onerous, um, but they did make it possible for uh, the same dealers, the same collectors, the same uh, uh, couriers to bring materials into the Bonnier. They also meant that the same buyers could buy stuff out again over generations. And oftentimes people would come in and ask, is this the shop of, and they would use the name of the grandfather or the present owner. So once it's been purchased, it's then cured and stored. And that involves a lot of skill. That involves knowing how to dry it, how to store it. Um, it also involves having the wherewithal to put things into warehouses. They have lots of go down. Um, it involves um, uh, quality control and the reputation for quality control. Um, and it also involves being quite smart about knowing how long to hold a commodity for. So um, some of these materials are seasonally unavailable. Uh, some of these materials will come into sharp demand depending on large rituals being held in various places. Um, and the Bania are acutely aware of long-term speculation and the possibility that their goods will rot in the warehouse. So they're constantly balancing their ability to cure and, and hold these substances over against the best time to sell them. They then wholesale them out. Um, and they can uh, sell on to restaurants, they can sell on to incense factories, they sell on to hotels, they sell on to Ayurvedic hospitals, they sell on to um, uh, regional Ayurvedic, Vaidya Pasal, Ayurvedic shops all around Nepal. Uh, on one, one of the clearest demonstrations of the worth of the Bania in the network that they, uh, that they, that, that, that they maintain and, 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 and participate in is that, uh, for example, we would see that materials had been harvested from uh, mountains above and behind Gorka um, and brought down to the Banias to be assessed, graded, dried, and they would then be bought by Vaidya Pasal owners from Gorka. So whatever it was the Banias were doing, it was worth enough to uh, make it worthwhile for, that, for those materials to take quite a long detour, detour. before they were actually sold off. Another, Another important customer for them is Tibetan Lamas. Tibetan Lamas. Um, uh, and again, one evidence of the worth of the Banias uh, skill is, is that uh, sitting around the Bania shops, one encounters some pretty extraordinary people. Um, I met the, I think his name is Tashi Tashigang, um, quite a famous uh, Tibetan medical expert from Tibet House in Delhi one day at one of the Bania Pasal. And um, his English was perfectly fluent. He rather laughed to find me there. And I asked him what he was doing there. And he said, well, it's quite simple if you actually know you have to have the right ingredient and it has to be the best quality, this is the only place you can go. And so from the perspective of this person and from the perspective of uh, a few incarnate lamas who would come by every now and then, um, the, the Banias were unique in their ability to uh, identify and preserve and uh, correctly price and sell on these kinds of medical materials. They also do a thriving retail business. So for Nawaz living 
in Kathmandu uh, to Bania Puzzle Wanigo is something that you do all the time. You just go down to the Bunny Apostle to get a cough remedy. You go down to the Bunny Apostle to pick up a bit of camphor. You go down to the Bunny Apostle to get the uh, organic ingredients that you might need for a ritual. So Guruju's, uh, the Tonchik Buddhist priests, um, or uh, just folks from families would come down to get things. They'd get dried fruits. And they would also come for kind of minor ailment service, um, burns, uh, small burns, um, coughs, colds, uh, generally not feeling particularly well, um, a child who wasn't eating very well. Um, and the Bania were acutely aware of their place within a kind of uh, responsible community of doctors and would very often say, look, that's 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 beyond our capacity. You need to go speak either to a hospital or to a guruju. Uh, so they would forward someone on to a better qualified professional. Okay. So several times now I've talked about Nibbania as being within a network. Um, and in other presentations I've done on this work, and certainly in the, the diagrams and writings that we've come up with to try and make sense out of what we discovered, there are some very complicated diagrams that we've drawn of how materials and money and knowledge flow back and forth across uh, a, a very rich network involving lots of different actors. But this is one way the Bunya themselves talk about it. So they see there, they, they see a, 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 a kind of a succession of stages that goes from the mountain to a collector to the bunya, and then on to a healer of some kind, a doctor of some kind, and from there to the patient's body. What really happens now um, is that there are often couriers involved, um, and the regional medical shops are also very much part of the chain. But this sequence from mountain to collector, possibly to courier, to bunya, then to the doctor, then to the patient's body, is a very important uh, local conceptual framework for understanding uh, where the bunya sit. Um, and this is, a, this is a sequence that others agree on as well. So the collectors, the doctors, they see themselves as sitting in this chain as well. And they, and they, they acknowledge this as a, a, a good way of describing how materials flow and how they become medicines. Um, so the materials themselves change character and they gain specificity. They become better and better defined. And they also gain economic value as they progress along this chain. So um, when it's at the mountain, it's still a plant. The collector takes it and it's 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 fresh, it's pallava, it's um it's it's you know it's just it's just been picked. Um in many cases, of course, the 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 collector knows to go back and pull something out of the ground, which is a a plump root, which would be invisible. If you didn't know that earlier in the season there'd been um, the leaves of a bulb standing up above it. Um, but the collector's job is to be able to find these uh, plants and get them in the best possible condition. Um, in the ideal version of this story or this framework, which the Bunyas tell, um, and which uh, even the collectors don't talk about it this way, the doctors still do. Um, it goes straight from the collector to the bunya. But the advent of roads um, has meant that uh, a new element is, is there in the system and has been for at least 50 years, which is these, these couriers. Um, so very often the material is brought by a middleman, a courier of some sort. And in the courier's hands, this thing is wet or damp. Um, and it's, it's very vulnerable. It's no longer in the ground and it's liable to rot. Um, and the, 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 the bargaining that goes on when the bunny receives a material is often very much around, I, you know, this, 
dog eel. This is this is starting to go off. Um, but if the bunia takes it in, then the bunia transforms it from something which is dangerously moist and vulnerable to rotting to something which is correctly identified and correctly cured and dried and sorted, and it becomes a medical ingredient. Um, and it then goes on to a doctor and is then taken into the patient's body. Now, the bunya are very interesting because, well, they're interesting for lots of reasons, but um, one of the ways in which they see themselves, if we go back to this picture, you see on one side of them, there are collectors. On the other side of them, there are doctors. Um, the couriers are, are, are now there and um, the, they position themselves over against the couriers in quite a specific way as well. But Bunia, all Noahs, so far as I know, um, uh, David may be able to correct me on this, but so far as I know, all Noahs are supposed to go on pilgrimage to Silu, to Gosankund, at least once in their life. Um, and there is, of course, the wonderful Noah film, Silu. Um, you're not supposed to go together with your wife or indeed uh, someone uh, uh, someone you're romantically attached to. Um, and the Bania are ritually prohibited from going on pilgrimage to Silu. So far as I know, they're the only Noah community that isn't allowed to go there. Um, they say they cannot go there because if they did, they would, uh, the language differs, but, but they would be distracted by encountering the actual fresh plants. Um, they would be um, either uh, confused and lose their way and uh, not be able to travel through the mountains successfully and, and, and um, or in, even they would go mad. They would become so overwhelmed by seeing the, the, these, these plants growing wild that they would, they would just uh, go a little bit puggle, a, a, bit, a bit mad. So that bars them from moving towards the mountain. They're not, they're not allowed to, to, to move along this network going towards the position of the collector. They're also not allowed to take pulses. So the skill that a, uh, a Guruju or an Ayurvedic doctor, a Kaviraj has, there, there are many diagnostic tools they have, but reading pulses is one of them. Um, and in the origin myth, for how the Banya came to live in Kathmandu. Um, I won't go through the whole origin myth, but uh, they first come because one of their ancestors is a very skilled healer who can read pulses um, and heals a princess who's very ill. Um, but after that, they have a number of spectacular failures and are severely punished for it. And so they choose to avoid being doctors. They choose to, to, to not be people who read pulses and therefore expose themselves to the risk of a false diagnosis. Um, and again, that means that they can't move down the network in the direction of being doctors. They, are, they, they have to stay exactly where they are. Um, so we can look at that as being um, a, a set of prohibitions that pins them in place. But if you turn it on its head, what it is is an overt acknowledgement that there is a connected chain. There's a set of cells, a set of nodes um, that interact together, and all of them are required to create successful medicine. Um, and it's um, the Bania are, are defending their necessity where they are in the chain, but they're also arguing for the existence of this network by taking on these prohibitions. Okay. So that's an introduction to the Bania. When we were doing our research, we were interested in exploring the whole network that radiated out from the Banya. So 
we also went to look at local medical shops in the in that were outside the Kathmandu Valley. Um, we interviewed people who owned um, little Vaidya Pasal in uh, Trishuli and Gorka, places like that. But we also, as best as we could, followed um, the couriers and the collectors. And that took us to places that the Vanya themselves could not go. It took us up to Alpine Meadows. Um, and these are very rich places. Um, they are uh, they are the primary interaction site between the mountains and the collectors, and that that interaction can be very intimate. Um, they are, as we will see, um, ritually created places uh, in in the in the way that. Charles Ramble was using the term place uh, a fortnight ago. They are very much places. Um, the mountains themselves are alive in many different senses. When we start to ask questions about how uh, global heating affects all of what I'm describing here, we'll see that the, the fact that the mountains are alive is felt acutely by everybody. They are seasonal, highly social places. Um, uh, they are sites where experts uh, contend with each other, um, hide their activities from each other, share knowledge depending on the relationship that they have to other plant collectors um, in order to collect these commodities. I should say um, people will be familiar with the trade in Yarcha Gompa um, and uh, the, the, the politics and the practice and the territoriality and the sheer kind of rowdiness of the Yarcha Gompa trade is something completely different from uh, almost everything else that you do in Himalayan medicinal plant collection. So uh, uh, this is a bit different from that. Um, and the plant collecting itself requires rituals. Um, so I I opened with that ritual that that song from the Atarva Veda. Um, similar things are still used today. One of our best uh, collaborators was a person who uh, I'm going to call Barry here. That's kind of close to his name, but it wasn't his real name. Um, and the story that, that he had, he, is had before, before, he was he called, was called Barry, Barry, is that his mother had uh, dry teats. His mother had no milk. Um, so his mother's milk was berries picked from the mountain. Um, he lived in a community up on the side of Himalchuli, and he was known to others as having unusually dark skin because he was constituted by berries, and he was also uh, known to himself and to others as having a particularly intimate kinship with the mountain. The mountain was, in some sense, his mother or his 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 wet nurse, and. Uh, he claimed, and others backed him up in this, that he had a, an unusually sensitive relationship to the condition of the meadows, to the, the, the movement of the plants over time, to the weather. Um, and that, did, that didn't mean that he had any easier a life. The life of a, 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 one of these plant collectors is pretty rough. And uh, at times he would just go work as a security guard in India, uh, when he knew there was an opportunity to make more money off doing the plant trade, he would come back. Uh, it's what he liked doing, and he tried to find ways of helping younger people get on with it. Uh, but um, it was it was not a, a a stable livelihood every year. So this the 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 opening picture I had. This is a naga pool up on the side of Himalchuli. Um, and this is a place that uh, we were brought to, to understand how Barry and others uh, located and uh, uh, harvested plants correctly. And this pool was a key feature of the system of meadows in the area. It's an alpine tarn. <coughs> Pardon me. And it, there's, you can just see on the right side of the picture, there's an island there. What you can't see is that there's a stake that sits there in the island. 
and the the folks we were with when we were up there said that the level of the water in the tarn rose and fall, fell continuously um day on day on day you could see it change its level and that was said to be evidence of the naga who lived there and we were required to perform a ritual when we arrived at the edge of this place in order to enter the place uh, because we were told quite firmly because we were leading the team we had to do the ritual um and if we did not do a ritual uh bad things would happen so we were required to do a small ritual but it was made clear that we had to do a small ritual when we entered this area <coughs> that stake was associated with quite a, a, a quite a story a story that 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 we were told in the evening and that was intended to be a scary story but it was a scary story the story goes that um some years ago when things had not been going well in this meadow and uh, something was perceived to be amiss a bull i i i can't remember and i can't find either a recording or my notes to remember whether it was a bull or a cow um was taken out to the island when the water was low um, and tied to the stake and left there. And then everyone retreated. And after a very short space of time, after an hour or so, the water started to rise. And the water rose and rose and rose. And the, the animal panicked, um, but it was tied there and it was drowned. And when the water went back down again, the animal was gone. So this was told to us as a story of how one makes a living sacrifice to the Naga that guards this particular place. All right. So this Alpine meadow then um, is, it's a, a ritually constituted place. It's very social. Um, it's, a, it's a site in transhuman pastoralism so people bring their, their 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 animals up there during the summer um uh, and take them back down slope again in the winter um it's very rich in medicinal plants it's generally a fairly biodiverse place i we didn't do a proper survey we didn't have the the the, the materials or the people with us to do that properly um but so all, all of this kind of language is very satisfying to people who do uh, work on sacred sites and people who do work on medicinal plant networks in the Himalayas. This idea that you have a, a anthropogenic biodiversity, a kind of biodiversity that arises together with human activity. This is this is a real prize trying to understand how anthropogenic anthropogenic biodiversity works. But in contrast, and this is one of the, the interesting problems I'm trying to tackle in this material today, in contrast to the way in which anthropogenic biodiversity is usually understood in conservation biology, you can't make sense out of how that biodiversity is stewarded or protected or created or enhanced in this alpine meadow without looking at the whole chain, the whole network of communities involved in the medicinal plant trade, um, as well, arguably, as, as, as other communities as well. For instance, the, the pastoralists themselves, the, the herders. So for comparison, um, Jan Salek, who was at Oxford um, and was the curator of ethnobotany at the Missouri Botanic Gardens for a long time, and Bob Mosley, Robbie Hart, quite a few other people worked on the Kawakarpo area, Kawagarbo in, in, in Yunnan, um, which is a, uh, a menri, a medicine mountain that sits in that extraordinary area where the, the various major rivers that pass through that part of Asia all sit right close to each other. It's an incredibly rugged uh, and, and very biodiverse area. And uh, this team published a series of studies which were very rigorously done. Um, that explored exactly how biodiversity, plant diversity in particular, worked in areas that were identified 
as medicine mountains or medicine meadows or sacred forests. And they showed successfully by doing a series of comparisons. So they would they would choose a site which was identified as being either a sacred site or a medicine mountain site. And then they would pair it with another site that was in other aspects, in, in terms of, for instance, soil type, aspect, altitude. Um, it was uh, the, the, the general floristic composition. It was tightly comparable to this first site, but it wasn't defined as a sacred site. Um, and they ran through a whole series of pairwise comparisons and showed in a, a, a quite rigorous way that plant diversity was higher in the sites that were defined as sacred sites, that were recognized as sacred sites by uh, the community that was recognized them was the community of uh, Menla practitioners, Tibetan medicine practitioners that were active around Kawagarbo. Um, this is a good comparison to what we're looking at at the Himalchuli Meadow because their study assumes um, that the sacred site is identified as, as a sacred site after the biodiversity has already come into being. And they um, are also assuming, well, they're assuming, therefore, that the, the, the identification of a site as a sacred site has a protective effect. In other words, this place has lots of lovely medicinal herbs. We're going to, you know, it becomes a sacred site for us. And because it becomes a sacred site, um, there are restrictions that come into play around harvesting. So you can't over harvest. You can only harvest certain times. Only certain people can enter the area. Um, but it doesn't actually constitute the biodiversity. So the human activity in the area does not create the diversity. The same, uh, John Salek, looking at other places in other parts of the world um, and the other place that she's well known for having worked on is the, is the case of the Yanisha in, in the Peruvian Amazon. She argued when she was working there that a single indigenous community can actively create high biodiversity in their landscape through uh, active planting measures, through actually planting out specific things, through um, uh, introducing plants, through creating gardens, through creating forest landscapes by uh, reforesting and, and specific harvesting methods. So this comparison between the way in which Kawagarbo is being analyzed and what we were seeing in Himalchuli shows up a few assumptions that I'd like to question. Um, and those are assumptions that drive a lot of the debates within discussions around conservation biology and indigenous people and conservation biology and sacred sites. So sacred landscapes in conservation is a, it's a big deal. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about it. Uh, it's a, 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 a well-discussed field that has lots of publications around it. There are, uh, uh, working groups for the World Conservation Union. There are films, um, and I, 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 I play with these people. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in at least one of these working groups, and and I have, uh, I've been involved in writing up some, some, some work that they've done. Generally, from what they take to be a slightly grumpy, critical perspective, <laughs> um, and there are lots of reasons why this idea of sacred landscapes or sacred natural sites are very, very poorly theorized. Um, and um, uh, Pete Brogius at Georgia did a, has, has published a series of articles in which he did a very good job of asking why this language is used. Anat Singh uh, has also asked a couple of good questions about this, but, but Brogius says quite nicely, the idea of the sacred is part of the grammar of conquest in contemporary indigenous struggles. So, for instance, we have this film series uh, that Toby McLeod made called Standing on Sacred Ground, which got broadcast widely at film festivals. It was broadcast on PBS in the uh, in the US. Um, and he makes a very strong claim that there is indigenous spirituality, uh, which is a thing that's proper to all indigenous peoples. Um, and it is fundamentally opposed to world religions, which are a well-defined thing as far as he's concerned. 
Um, and that whenever world religions come into contact with indigenous peoples, one of the immediate problems is that it corrodes indigenous spirituality and leads directly to the destruction of biodiversity. Um, so you can see there's a whole series of essentializing claims being made here, uh, sentimentalizing, essentializing claims being made here that don't really award very much agency to the communities that are in theory, according to a narrative like this, looking after these extraordinary landscapes. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the IPBES, the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. This is another top level intergovernmental panel that was uh, established a few years ago that is uh, uh, comparable to the IPCC, the Inter Intergovernmental Panel for on, on Climate Change. Um, the IPBES has an explicit remit to include indigenous communities and indigenous scientists on their own terms. Um, but there are huge culture clash problems. And uh, there are times when IPBES debates sound as though you've got two, uh, you, you, you've got sort of conservation biologists trying very hard to convince everybody else that they just need to use the language of conservation biology and everything will be fine. And everyone else, well, there, there are culture clash problems. And it's a little frustrating to me um, and others, I think, because actually within anthropology and within STS, we've had a lot of people putting good work in on this. So people like Paul Silito, Joy Hendry, John Law, Helen Verren, um, Anat Singh, uh, Pete Rosies, lots of people have actually sat down and thought quite carefully about how best to um, create and steward indigenous-led collaborations, how to, uh, how to support indigenous anthropology as a project that allows for the, 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 the theorization of these kinds of collaborations from, the in, from, from, from an indigenous perspective, but that research hasn't really fed into IPBS processes. Okay, um, on the other side, you have a thing called the ICCA Consortium, um, uh, which is, uh, I think ICCA keeps on getting unpacked in different ways, but roughly it means the Indigenous and Community Conserved Protected Area Consortium. They have a very different language. Um, they talk about territories of life. They are a, a, a well-recognized um, Indigenous-led biodiversity conservation organization. Um, and they, have had some success where political regimes allow it um, in building collaborative management schemes and documenting successful practices around uh, the conservation of biodiversity or the stewarding or the creation of biodiversity in what they call territories of life. And they have a very different way of thinking about all these key terms. So they're they're very aware of the fact that terms like indigenous and sacred are deliberately mobilized terms within political struggles. Uh, and um, it, it, it can get quite funny uh, listening to folks in those conversations have a proper laugh around what authenticity stands for and um, who is indigenous really and how we use the term this week, that sort of thing. Um, so this is a very different community of people. Again, um, I, I am working with them to, 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 to some extent, I've been invited to be an, an, an honorary member of the consortium and I've been trying to help them build some tools. And unsurprisingly, you get direct pushback from the state on this. Um, so um, a couple of years ago, I was teaching in Bangladesh and I was invited by ICCA members to come up to a new community college, community university being founded in Bandaragon. Um, and um, I was invited in part because we were trying to figure out how to use that as a platform to bring uh, indigenous leaders and people studying land management and um, anthropologists and development uh, actors from around Bangladesh to collaborate around some of the uh, what what were called sacred groves and sacred sites in the Chittagong Hill tracts. Um, so that was that was a lovely invitation. And um, the morning 
after I arrived, the morning of the day on which I was expected to give a, a, a kind of talk at this new institution, um, I was informed by the man who ran the hotel that I was expected at a, a meeting on the other side of the road. And I didn't know about this. And I said, well, what's on the other side of the road? Is it that building over there? I said, oh, um, okay. Who am I meeting? Well, just go over there. Um, it was the internal security. It was the it was the, the the national security force, and I found myself in a meeting with the local head of security for Bandaraban district within the Chittagong Hill Tracks. Um, and after we politely greeted each other and uh, got our cups of tea, his opening gambit with me was you do understand there are no indigenous peoples in Bangladesh. And we had a long and robust conversation about this. He was, uh, he'd done some history at university. And so we had a long discussion around um, ethnogenesis and the history of the Chittagong Hill Tracts and the role of Islam in civilizing the region and all sorts of other things. Um, but it was very clear that uh, although this is not official policy within the state of Bangladesh, it is unofficial policy within the Chittagong Hill Tracts as an area that requires a special kind of control that the simple existence of indigenous peoples is denied. They don't exist. There's nothing prior to the Bangladeshi state. Um, and just as a side thought, um, there are some interesting questions around the definition of indigenous people across Asia. Uh, I, I do wonder whether in the same way that the PRC, that Mao borrowed some of his thinking about uh, 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 nations or communities within China from uh, the Russians, I do wonder if, if the Bangladeshis are borrowing some of their policy from the PRC. Okay. So that puts us here. Um, what, can, what can we do to take the kind of ethnographic material that I was describing about medicinal practices and these medicinal networks in the Himalayas, especially around Kathmandu? Um, how can we take that and connect it to these uh, questions of indigenous-led conservation. And I think trying to understand anthropogenic biodiversity in the Himalayas, we need to make two moves. Um, and these are, not, these are not new moves, but I think we need to take them very, very seriously. So the first thing is that we need to use theory and methods that begin in these messy relations and not above them. Um, uh, uh, Isabel Stengers wrote a very nice piece in for a, a symposium on comparative relativisms called Comparison as a Matter of Concern. It was published in um, uh, Common Knowledge, I think. Um, and uh, she does a very nice job there of uh, exploring what it would be like to do comparison without assuming that it's possible to take a third pole, to take a third position, to take a position outside the comparance. Um, or Helen Varon's work on ontics, where she talks about this idea that things clot, they clot provisionally. Um, there are uh, sites of encounter that succeed provisionally, and from that you can build what you need, but it's nothing more authoritative than that. Um, uh, Anna Singh's done some good work on this. There, again, there are lots of people who've done really good work on this, but we really need to take this seriously. Um, it, it's it's a, a question of kind of decolonizing and decentering, uh, accepting a polycentric social science, accepting a, a, a fully decolonized social science, um, and 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 getting the conservation biologists to accept it as a key tool in the toolbox. And there are plenty of reasons why that's a very hard thing to do. I still think it needs doing. The other thing that we need to do, though, is we need to stretch to the scale of the networks, and this is a different problem. Um, I think if we look at the two studies that Jan Salek was involved in, and she's a, she's a, a friend and someone I've learned a lot from, and um, 
I have a, the, a really great respect for her ability to pull this material out of long-term, hard, careful studies of social practices and also biodiversity samples in a landscape. But uh, they're assuming uh, a, a kind of old-style anthropology model of um, uh, small societies in, in small places. And we have good textual evidence from something as far back as the Atarva Veda. We have um, really good ethnographic evidence from looking at the Bania and the way in which they uh, integrate and build and uh, construct this network. And, and they do. They very carefully go recruit people to become part of this network. They'll very carefully do things like offer very good credit terms or very low uh, or, or very steep discounts to uh, new collectors or, or um, uh, uh, um, new traders working in the network. They, they try very hard to encourage the, 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 the spread of the network. Um, and that's part of how they do what they do. Um, we, this, 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 this really extensive mesh that stretches from Alpine Meadows to Kathmandu. And actually, you know, it goes to Lhasa, it goes to Delhi, it goes to Beijing, it goes to uh, uh, Kuala Lumpur. It stretches across the region. Um, and until we understand how complex and how, uh, how broad reaching these networks are, we're gonna be stuck with this idea that, that, it, that it's, that it's uh, little societies with little ideas and, and very local theories, when in fact what we're looking at is an extremely complex process of generating a, a, a lateral mesh of knowledge. Um, and all of that mesh is what we have to think of when we think about so-called local ecological knowledge. Um, yeah, sorry, I've, I've already pointed to this. So. The 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 bunny are extraordinary in 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 the degree to which they are self consciously aware of themselves as network generators, um, and there is a, a, a an unfolding tragedy in that there are very few bunny left. They do still um, work quite hard to uh, uh, encourage the trade, but um, it's it's not a viable livelihood for most of them. The vast majority of bodies have set aside the business of doing this kind of work. Um, I'm almost finished. So the way in which this knowledge is transmitted over time, right? if we think of this as a, as a broad network rather than single communities, if we think of this whole thing as a kind of integrated mesh, um, then we can also ask, how does the network as a whole learn? And we can look at each point in the network and, and ask, how is knowledge transmitted through time? So for example, uh, a guruji, a, 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 a tantric bhadracharya, a tantric Buddhist doctor, um, or a, a, a vaidya, uh, an Ayurvedic doctor, is deeply constrained by textual learning. Um, they they are bound by textual rituals. They're bound by textual canons. I've had some lovely conversations about lapshi, for example, which is a, 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 a absolutely ubiquitous fruit that you find in the central Himalayas, where uh, a very respected Vaidya said, look, yes, I know it's a wonderful digestive. You know, we all eat it after meals to make ourselves feel better, but I can't find its name in any textual source. It's not in any of the lists of medicine, so I can never prescribe it as a medicine. I have to prescribe the medicines that are listed there. Um, on the other side, uh, the, 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 the collectors, for example, um, in, in our case of Barry, he's actually learning from the mountain. He sees the mountain as a source of knowledge, and he's and he's he's observing it. He's 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 studying it constantly. But when we asked for stories about how people became collectors or how they became couriers, it was there was no sentiment about it at all. Um, there was a lot of stealing other people's knowledge, stealing people's patches, stealing um, customers from rivals, uh, stealing goods from rivals. Uh, bribing officials to not let your rivals through, um, and and quite a bit of violence, quite a bit of being beaten up. Um, Barry described uh, trying to get into the business uh, because his uncle did it, and um, following his uncle. And when his uncle found him following, his uncle thrashed him properly, um, 
And from that, Barry learned simply to follow his uncle more carefully. Um, so, uh, you know, on the side of the doctors, we've got this very rigid textual learning on the side of the collectors, the couriers, we've got this notion of, of, of appropriating, stealing, um, capturing knowledge from your seniors and your rivals. The Bunia, though, they do something different. Um, and again, this, this, this points to their centrality in the network, but also the way in which they generate it. Um, they are bricoleurs. They are borrowers. They create new kinds of information constantly. Um, so we were uh, allowed to look at uh, the, the new notebook that the child, the son of one of the, of the mo more famous body um, in the previous generation, had made as he was learning. So he had very carefully gone and taken photographs of every single substance, um, pasted it onto a page in a, in a three ring binder, and uh, then put his own notes from various Ayurvedic texts, from uh, Tibetan texts, um, from, uh, from whatever sources he could find. Uh, and uh, by the time that we were interviewing them, they were freely using websites. Um, and looking at, 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 at websites for information about the Ayurvedic or, or other qualities, the gunas of, of these different uh, substances and, and, and checking to see whether or not they were right in their identifications. So they're very creative um, and they compile new kinds of document in each generation. Um, so this is an example from the mid 20th century. Uh, this, was, this was thrown into the streets um, and picked up by um, a, a, a very dear teacher and friend, uh, and now, for many years now, a great uncle of mine, Subhanam Um So he found this sitting in the, in, in, in the street, uh, in the district where the, the Baniyas all used to have their shops, um, and it was, a loose, it was a loose leaf notebook. This is almost certainly copied from a, a text that was probably published in Hindi or in English in the mid 19th century. I haven't been able to pin down exactly what text it is. Um, you can see it's got Navari numbers penciled in on the page, um, just, just there plus Devanagari, and it lists the name of uh, Karpur, Kampfer, in dozens of different languages, Gujarati, uh, Kannada, Bangla, um, Latin, uh, English, um, and he's also added his own fields. So there's uh, Arabic, Tibetan, um, uh, the Yunani name for it, uh, the, the Nepali name for it, Parbate. Um, and there, 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 there are many pages of this. And uh, in some cases, there's sort of multiple layers of commentary sitting on this. So this is the way in which the Baniyas themselves are uh, reconstituting knowledge across the network and, and being highly adaptive um, and, and, and building, again, building new knowledge into the network. But um, we have to recognize, the last thing we have to recognize here is the mountains themselves are learning and they're changing very, very quickly. And this is part of why this whole question is so important. Um, there was a piece in The Guardian just a couple of days ago, which uh, unfortunately didn't mention a really beautiful research project called the Gloria Project. Uh, uh, which is a, 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 a global comparative study of mountain peaks worldwide. But what we know is that in all of these locations, these alpine meadows, they sit close to the, they sit close to the, um, the, 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 the line beyond which uh, various plant communities won't grow. So uh, that, that, that meadow in, in uh, Himalchuli had a few scrubby trees, but they're basically the trees that all stopped a little way below. Not very far above that, you keep going and the plants stop altogether. Um, and because of global heating, plant communities are walking up mountains worldwide. In the northern hemisphere, they're walking north. In the southern hemisphere, they're walking south. A lot of communities that are long established stable plant communities are breaking up. Um, relationships between plants and pollinators, plants and herbivores are breaking up because animals can move in ways that plants can't, um, and species are going extinct left and right because they're literally walking up mountains until there's no place else to go. So that's another element to all of this, is the mountains themselves are changing very, very quickly. And that gives us the motivation, the ethical motivation, to try and understand this idea of anthropogenic biodiversity. That's the, that's the driver behind why there's a, there's, a, there's a moral imperative here to try and do this work and make sense out of how 
in various far more complicated ways than the conservation biologists are prepared to accept, even the very good and sympathetic ones. Um, there are these very rich, not at all local, um, transregional um, ecological and medical knowledge networks that play now because they become fully politicized that play with categories of sacred or indigenous in order to achieve different kinds of goal um so in the end really what i'm asking for is just a, a, a far deeper and more sophisticated understanding of what's going on here um and trying to provide a bit more evidence to help us do it okay thank you